Our sermon text is Job 38, verses 1 to 7. And as we continue through our Hope for the Hurting series, this will be our our last sermon from Job. And, And next week, we move into Palm Sunday and then Easter. Now, a few, a few years ago, during a particularly turbulent political time in our country, I was, I was scrolling through Facebook and came upon a post from one of my friends. And in it, he expressed his frustration with certain elements of society, particularly leadership. There were a few things that were troubling him, and he ended this, this long, thoughtful post with this line, I guess God is no longer on the throne. I guess God is no longer on the throne. My friend is is looking at the world around him and wondering how a God who professes to be a God of love, that professes to love his creation, love people, and then also claims to be a God that is all-powerful, if this God is on the throne, then why isn't he putting things right? Why isn't he making things right? right or or good? Why is he letting the world fall into decay, into the mess that it has become? And so he concludes that that God must have left his throne for, for what other explanation could there possibly be? How could a good God claim to be in power, claim to be on the throne, and still let all of these bad things happen? And that question, to a degree, is he is wrestling with what Job has been wrestling with, and in some ways, what we have been wrestling with these past four weeks. We've wrestled with the deep questions, does God pervert justice, and is God for me or against me? And we've seen how both of those questions are answered in the cross. Does God pervert justice? Yes, he very much did when he asked his innocent son to take on the sin of the world and be punished for it by dying on the cross so that God could have a relationship with those who could not pay for their sin themselves, namely, every person that ever lived. And to the question, is God for me or against me? Again, that question is answered in the cross, which showed that ultimately God is for us. His ultimate plan and purpose is for us to never suffer again, to live with him in the eternal bliss of heaven. And he accomplished that by sending Jesus to take on the sin that was separating us from God so that through faith in Jesus, we can be reconciled, brought brought back into relationship with God. And those are great answers to huge and and deep questions. And we can rest in those answers. And and they bring us hope in our time of hurting as we look forward to a time where hurting will end forever. But those questions and the answers to them, they they don't necessarily bring comfort to the immediate pain that we are feeling, do they? It's like, it's like breaking your leg and, and going to the doctor and the doctor saying, it's going to be fine. You're going to walk again. You'll be able to, to rest in the knowledge that one day you will run and walk like you used to. But, but then right now, you're in, a, you're in a ton of pain because your leg is broken. And this six to eight week journey to being fully healed is, is not looking pleasant. Instead, it looks long and, and painful and so we ask, if, if you love me, God, and want the best for me, why am I having to deal with this pain? Why did this bad thing happen? Why, why did it happen to me or, or, or to the person that I love? Or, or why is it happening in the world around me? Why did my husband get Alzheimer's? Why, why was my childhood so difficult? 
Why was I laid off from work? Why do I struggle with anxiety and depression? Why, why was I allowed to be abused? Why is cancer even a thing that happens to people? Why is this coronavirus on the loose, destroying lives around the globe? Why? Why? And the implication of the question, the implication in the question, is why didn't you stop it? If you love me, if you love us, why, why didn't you prevent it? Did you forget? Were you too busy? Are you still in control? Are you still on the throne? We've asked different versions of the question why alongside Job for the past few weeks. And today in our text, God finally responds. Today in our text, God speaks. Now, God's response is about three chapters long, and we're not going to read all of them. But I would encourage you to do this at some point, to read Job 38 through 41. But for our purposes this morning, we are just going to read Job 38, 1 through 7. Let us read the word of the Lord together. Job 38, 1 to 7. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On, on what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Thus ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. pray this in your name. Amen. Our text this morning is the opening to three chapters that largely consist of God asking questions of Job. Questions that are beyond his ability to answer. Questions like, how did you decide how big to make the world? How did you make the stars hang in their place in the sky? Where, where are the storehouses of snow, Job? Where were you when I decided how far up the beach the waves would come and, and what the continents would look like? Three chapters of questions like this. This is not what Job was expecting. This is not what we were expecting. And, and at first blush, it, it almost seems offensive. I mean, how could God do this? He's already allowed Job to go through this like horrible time. And when Job questions him, which seems very logical and understandable uh, uh, from, from our perspective, considering the, the circumstances, and then, and then this, this is how God responds? He begins his questioning of Job with this particular question. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Another way of asking this question is, who is, who is questioning the mysterious and paradoxical, sometimes anti-logical way in which the world is ordered and operates, in which the world functions? Who is asking me questions that they do not really understand? Prepare yourself. God continues, get yourself ready, for it is now I who will ask you 
a few questions. And then the questions begin. What do we learn from this? What insights are we, are we given from this? How does, how does Job respond to this? The first thing we begin to realize is that God has no intention of answering the question, why? He has no intention of telling Job about the meetings of the heavenly council where Satan asked for permission to sift Job, and, and God has no intention of telling Job why he gave Satan that permission, which again begs the question, why? Why not? Like, come on, ease some of the guy's pain, right? Last year when... Uh, when Karen was pregnant with Ava, our boys had, had reached an age where they were getting pretty curious about how it was possible for a baby to get inside mom's belly and, and why it happened. Our typical response has been to say, well, you know, we'll, we'll tell you about that when you're older, which doesn't do anything to sate the curiosity of our children. But since it was the only answer they got, it was the one that they had to accept. And now Karen's pregnant again. And again come the questions, how, why, like what's, what's going on here? But this year, because of his age and because of certain circumstances outside of our control, we decided that it was time that we answered those questions for our eldest. He and I, I mean, we had a pretty good night together, much to the jealousy of his brothers. He, he got to go to a movie with dad and a tub of popcorn and a, and a bag of candy all to himself. And then we got to go out to his favorite restaurant where instead of getting a kid's meal this time, he was able to order a big burger off the menu and he got a Coke all to himself. No sharing. And then before the food came, we had the talk. My poor son. From the look on his face, it was apparent that this was the most awkward conversation he had ever had. And I used the term conversation lightly because it was mainly me talking and him trying to do everything he can to avoid eye contact and barely nodding his head when I asked him if he was following along and if he understood. And then the food arrived and, and the poor guy barely touched it. On the drive home, I asked him if he was glad that he finally had the answers to the questions or if he would have rather not known. It was the loudest I had heard him since the conversation began. I would have rather not known, he said from the back seat. My poor son. And I mean, I get it. I, I, I really do. I'd rather not have had that particular conversation with him myself. I was worried that it would forever taint that restaurant and that movie for the poor guy, but... When we went as a family later that week, he was still excited to go. So like, that, was, that was reassuring. He was, he was getting over it. But even though I would rather have not had that conversation, it, it was part of my job as his parent to understand when it's time to answer the questions of how and why. Or if there will ever be a time to answer them, if, if I should ever answer some of them. When it comes to the birds and the bees, I mean, there's no choice there. One day, each of my sons will know I cannot and should not keep them in the dark there forever because one way or another, through me or a friend at school or by some other means that are much more nefarious, they are going to find out. But there are some questions that I will never answer, like questions about certain horror movies that I will not allow them to watch and that I refuse to watch myself, but that some of the kids from school have told them about. No good can come from answering those questions. And, and if I can spare my children some nightmares, I'm going to do just that. And so there are some questions that I just refuse to answer. Which category do the whys that we ask 
And that Job asks, which category do they fall into? Is it God not answering because we are not ready for the answer? Is God not answering them because the answer will do us harm? Is it some other reason that he has remained silent in the face of our questions? We are not told. We aren't told. In God's response to Job's question of why, we do not see the reason that God is withholding the answer. And God has reasons for this that that we will never understand. And, you know, we may never be told. But though we do not see the answer to the question why, there are some things that we do see in God's response to Job. And one of them is that God is not condemning Job. He tells Job that the questions he is asking and some of the responses that he has had to his friends can only be classified as words without knowledge. And he tells Job to brace himself, to to tuck his robe into his belt and get ready for the questions that are coming. But nowhere in his response do we see God condemn Job. The hardships that Job is facing are not the vengeful response of an angry God. Hold on to that. Hear that. Listen to that again. The hardships that Job is facing are not the vengeful response of an angry God. And there is comfort to be found in that reality, in that truth. The hardships that we are facing as individuals, as a country, and as the world are not the vengeful actions of an angry God. For the wrath of God was poured out in full on Jesus Christ on the cross. We do not get to act like we also suffer a portion of it. Like we want to take our, our, we want to be martyrs, I think, sometimes. We want to take our portion of of, of God's wrath so that we can feel justified in the suffering that we have. But we we don't get to do that. Christ took all of it. The hardship that we experience is not punishment from God. It is not God's condemnation. Now, God does use hardship. He, he uses it to, to draw us closer to him. He uses it to encourage us to rest in him as we realize that we cannot find true rest, true peace in ourselves or in the world around us, as is also evident in our current circumstances. But that's not punishment. Jesus took the punishment in our place on the cross. And then he defeated sin and death by rising again. What a powerful, and amazing God that we serve. And, and really, truly, this is the realization that dawns on Job as God is asking him these questions. Instead of being frustrated that God isn't giving him a straight answer to the whys that have been plaguing him, instead of being mad that God seems to be dodging the questions, instead of being hurt that God is withholding what seems to be pretty pertinent information, instead of having any of these responses that we would deem as, you know, pretty logical, normal, and expected, instead of what we would consider logical responses, Job is overcome by the power and the authority of God. At first... When reading through this list of questions, it looks to be a list of the shortcomings of man, right? It, it seems to point out where Job, where we fall short. But that's only the case if we're making the story about us, which is, I mean, that's what we're naturally pretty inclined to do. It's, it's kind of like superheroes, right? As we've been sheltering at home, and, and since it doesn't look like the end of, of needing to shelter at home is very close, and, and since we have a subscription to, to Disney+, Plus, we started watching the Marvel movies with the boys, now, superheroes, they're, they're a lot of fun. They're, they're big and strong and, and fierce and, and brave. And we want to be like superheroes. What, what, what kind of costumes do we see most at Halloween? 
superheroes, right? We want to be the hero. Like, we like that. We want to be the one that saves the day. We want to be the one that people aspire to be. We want the story to be about us. And so when we hear these questions that God is asking Job, we're frustrated and angry because we want the story to be about us. We have, in our own way, and by asking the question why, we have inserted ourselves into a position of authority, expecting that we have the authoritative clearance to be given to demand an answer. But as these questions are being thrown Job's way, he is coming to a pretty harsh realization The story isn't about him. He doesn't have the authoritative clearance to demand an answer. Job's not the superhero. He's one of the thousands of people running away from the bad guy, right? He's in the massive hysteria in humanity that's being saved by the superhero. That has been saved by the work of the ultimate hero, the work of Jesus on the cross. This story is not about us. The story is about God. God is the central character. And so this is not a list that fleshes out the shortcomings of man. What it truly is, is a list that displays the greatness of God. This is the God who formed the earth from nothing. The God that told the waters how far they would go, that created gravity and light that hung the stars in the universe in each place with intentionality. This is the God who made the moon and the sun so that there would be light on the earth for day and and not so much darkness at night that we couldn't get around if we needed to. This is the God that created the creatures of the earth in their own fantastic way. He decided that bears would hibernate in the winter and that salmon would return to the pools of their spawning. With some of your free time while you're, you're hanging out at home, flip on Netflix or Disney Plus or, or whatever it is that you describe and you subscribe to and, and watch a nature show about the animals and, and be overcome in the detail and imagination and power of our God. So often it seems that, that science and Christianity are at war and that, that saddens me. Science is not the enemy. How we interpret science can be incredibly flawed especially when we are trying to use science to to push us away from belief in God, when, when really science, the study of the book of nature, the study of the world around us is a gift to us that, that gives us deeper insight into the power and wonder and majesty of God. Science is simply man's attempt to understand what God already knows, what God has created, what God has, has put into place what he has instituted by his power and his authority. And it's as delicate as the soft wings of a butterfly and as powerful and destructive as the tide crashing against the shore. As shifting and warm as the sand of the desert and as proud and immovable and majestic as the mountains. Read through these questions that God asks Job and see what God lays claim to. See his power over nature, how, how he put it all together from nothing and how he set it all in motion and how he continues to be incredibly invested and involved in how it all plays out. As I said last week, and I think it's worthwhile to repeat, God is not surprised by COVID-19. 
He didn't step off the throne for a little while to go play some racquetball with Michael and Gabriel and accidentally let the world fall into chaos. He does not lose control. He will never leave the throne. This is our God, creator of the universe. And there's so much comfort to take in that. So much comfort to know that our God cannot be taken by surprise. Our God does not sleep. Our God does not take vacations. Our God is ever on the throne, vigilantly loving his people. With his voice, he created the known universe. And with his voice, he proclaims his love for you. Our God speaks. I know that right now we are facing a very hard time in our country and around the world. Wisdom is easily confused with uncertainty and fear. We are asked to willingly give up rights that as Americans we hold very dear because someone who knows more than we do on a television screen is telling us that it's what we need to do in order to protect the vulnerable in our country. Our hospitals are flooding with the sick. People are dying as they wait to get into a hospital room with a bed. Some are dying at home. Many are sick at home hoping to never have to go to the hospital. Nurses and doctors are working around the clock, putting themselves at great risk to serve the people pouring into their facilities. The economy is crashing. A stimulus was just passed that we hope will help stem the tide, stem the tide that we hope will give people some financial respite. But we don't know how long this will continue, how long businesses will have to be closed, and how long so many people will be out of work. Our schools have shut down. Seniors don't know if they'll have prom or a graduation. Parents are desperately trying to teach their kids at home, but many are not trained for this, and and they're just hoping they can get enough into their kid's brain that they won't be too far behind when the school starts next year. And it is into times of great uncertainty like these that I would encourage us to go through Job 38 to 41 and read about who our God is and who he has proven himself to be. In this God of power and majesty, we can find comfort, for he is a rock on which we can be secure. He will guide us and journey with us down the hard road. He is capable. He will never leave us or abandon us, and we can put our faith in him. To this God of mercy and grace, we can bring our failings and our flaws, and we can be comforted in knowing that he has forgiven all of it. The hard things that we go through are not a punishment that he has sent against us, but he will still use them to draw us deeper into his comforting embrace. This God of love cares for you so much. He cares for you, loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, that through faith in him you could be restored to a good, a right relationship with God. God wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants to spend eternity with you, forever, chilling in heaven. Yes, this is our God. This is who the story is about, a God of love who is seeking those he loves, a God of power who uses his power to save, a God of hope who brings hope to the hurting. As we rest in this hope, And we rest in the power and we rest in this love and the comfort that it brings to us. Let it not just be a comfort. 
May God use it to inflame in us a passion for his mission. I read this week that in the early 4th century, the historian Eusebius, Eusebius wrote that a plague that was rolling over the eastern wrote about a plague that was rolling over the eastern half of the empire. Many healthy people fled the cities for the safety of the countryside, but one group largely stayed behind. The Christians all day long, they tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them, Eusebius writes. And that as people witnessed this compassion, he writes that the Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. As we rest in the comforting truth of the power, majesty, and awesomeness of our God, this same God who has saved us, is also sending us. Many of us are still trying to figure out what responsible mission looks like in this era of COVID-19. Let us seek it out. Maybe it's delivering groceries. Maybe it's making daily phone calls to those who are uh, known to be lonely or those that we know are are afraid. It could be a a number of things. What What is the Lord putting on your heart? What is he calling you to? There's a lot that I do not know about what ministry looks like for the church right now. But there's one thing that I'm absolutely absolutely confident of. God wants to use his church in his mission to bring about his kingdom. And the coronavirus is not putting a kink in his plans. It's not a speed bump or a roadblock that he wasn't anticipating. He will use his church during this time just as he used his church back in the early 4th century. And just as he will use his church until the end of mankind's time on this earth. So church, how will we be used? How will we share the faith that we have been given? And the source of our comfort and our hope in such hard and difficult times. The crops are ripe. The harvest is plentiful. And the Lord of the harvest is calling us into the fields. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of power and of might. We thank you for how you love us. We thank you for your son that you've sent to die for us. God, I thank you for these words of comfort. These words that at first reading can, can kind of sting, but as we recognize What you are proclaiming through these questions, it is just so wonderful to have a place to put our our hopes, to rest our fears. God, I thank you for who you are. And God, I pray that you would impress upon us your mission, that you would give us a heart for the lost, that you would give us a heart for the hurting. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for all of those who are joined with us on this stream God, I pray that you would unleash your people, that you would give us passion and vision for what this time looks like, this time of ministry looks like as we adjust what life looks like. Help us also to adjust what ministry looks like, Lord. And God, we we rest all of this in your hands as we submit to your will and your direction for our lives as we pray together in the way that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.